Welcome to the Explorers. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. Last time, we got a handle on our 1500s English surroundings. Now it's time to get right with God and find a place to have a pee. Grab your favorite prayer book. Let's go traveling. Snug in bed, you probably don't want to get up, but God demands it. It's time for morning prayer. Religion and religious institutions are the bedrock of our society. Its presence is felt in good times, at christenings and weddings and festivals, and in hard times as well. At the beginning of the Tudor age, abbeys and nunneries are in every town, feeding the poor, offering work, and taking in the sick. Our religion is deeply felt and deeply important to us. It impacts everything from how we educate our kids to how we spend our time. Separation of church and state? No way. In this age, they are hopelessly and often thornily entwined. This is important to keep in mind because in Tudor times, a woman's chief duty is to be godly and to teach her family to be the same. Gervais Markham, who wrote a guidebook for housewives in 1615, says that we must be of an upright and sincere religion, and in the same both zealous and constant. But constant to which religion? Catholicism or Protestantism? What is the correct and proper way to pray? These are some of the most fraught and pressing questions of the age. When we kicked off the century, England was staunchly Catholic, seriously Catholic. But just one year ago, Henry VIII broke with the Pope and the Catholic Church, who wouldn't grant him leave to divorce his first wife, Catherine of Aragon. In 1534, he declared that he should be England's final religious authority. He established the Church of England and dissolved England's monasteries. Old icons were axed, new prayer books printed. We are in the middle of a profound religious shakeup that will impact our way of life for decades to come. This is one of the earth-shaking moments in England's history, and we'll be getting into religion a lot more in a future episode. For now, just know that it is considered a cornerstone of life for women. A pious love of God and educating our children in the ways of religion are expectations that Tudor wives and mothers will keenly feel. We're good with God for the moment, it's time to freshen up. Skin, hair, teeth, they all need our attention. But first, let's have a quick morning pee. But where, pray tell, will we be doing our business? There are some plumbed privies in Tudor England. Henry VIII has plumbed bathrooms with running water installed at several of his residences. At Hampton Court, he'll even build the Great House of Easement, a two-tier, 28-seat communal latrine. It's not unlike the bathrooms we encountered in ancient Rome, come to think of it. Fun fact, the unfortunate boys tasked with scrubbing the grimy innards of this situation are called gong scourers. How revolting. Of course, this particular throne room is for Henry's lower-ranking courtiers. He has his own private privy stool, fitted with a pewter pisspot tucked discreetly away, its seat covered in luxurious sheepskin, velvet, even ribbons. Henry VIII just loves being extra. 
He also has his own privy attendant. This guy even has an official title, the Groom of the Stool, lol. In 1539, this guy will record one of the king's more obscene 2am bathroom runs, the result of taking laxatives and an enema before retiring. When his grace rose to go upon the stool, which, with the working of the pills and the enema his highness had taken before, had a very fair siege. TMI, stool groom. His daughter, Elizabeth I, will also have a privy attendant, Catherine Ashley, though her title is Chief Gentlewoman of the Privy Chamber. This queen will commission one of the first prototypes of the modern indoor toilet, the water closet, designed by her godson, John Harrington. It features a raised cistern and a small downpipe through which water flushes all queenly refuse away. He isn't the first to design a flushing poo palace. Londoner Thomas Brightfield did that in 1449. But he is the first to write down plans for one. Given water supply and plumbing issues, it won't catch on for a very long time. Most of us, noble or commoner, will use some form of chamber pot. Many will have privies, essentially a piece of wood with a hole cut into it, placed over a bowl or a hole in the ground. In castles, you'll go to a particular closet or garderobe and sit on what looks like a toilet seat. But there's no flushing involved. Your business will be whisked away by gravity, falling down through the air into a pit or a moat below. Please remember this moment later, when the day gets hot and you're pondering a tranquil swim, okay? In cities like London, many dwellings share the same communal privy, so it's no wonder that we're more likely to choose a private pisspot. But what exactly are we wiping with? Here's our time-traveling companion, Ruth Goodman. We know that some paper was used in the toilet because of comments that you get in things like Shakespeare. When I think I think there was one slope, not in Shakespeare, but in, in one writer writes about another. His, his work was fit only for bum fodder. Um, <laughs> something suitable only to be used to wipe your ass with. But I mean, just having the paper, you know, you've got that's all very well in the city of London, perhaps where there are lots of ballad sheets, you know, knocking about. And you know, there is sort of what you might call scrap paper. Um, but if you're in the countryside, that's less of a, of a viability. Now, many people postulate that people use leaves or moss. But again, you just have to think about the availability and practicalities. I mean, how many fields of moss would you need to keep a family going? <laughs> Through the winter, I mean, Britain, the trees all drop their leaves in the winter, so, <laughs> so you would have to be on mosques through the winter. And people need that land, not for growing bum fodder, they need it for growing food. <laughs> Fair enough. The most likely option, then, is a linen cloth. Given how expensive cloth is, though, your linen wipe isn't going to be one use only. You're going to wash that baby out and reuse it. Ruth has a theory as to what this might look like. I mean, you wouldn't want to share such things, but you might have had a cloth. Perhaps it hung on a nail in the privy. That was yours, and you wiped yourself and then washed it out. Just imagine our family's bum cloths all lined up in a row. I dearly hope you have some way of knowing for sure which one is yours. While we're in the privy, let's talk briefly about periods. For those of us who menstruate, what are we using to deal with the flow? Sadly, it's not something we tutors write about in great detail, or at all. 
a, a girl or woman was pretty much expected to sort this out herself privately. It wasn't even supposed to be seen by other female members of her family. It's very, very private. You didn't expose anybody else to this. There are references to rags attached to belts that would be worn under our clothing. Just like with toilet paper, the most practical and obvious solution will be linen rags. The other possibility is a homemade tampon. Um, again, if you take a little strip of linen and you roll it up into a sort of like little hard cylinder with one end free, you have got, to all intents and purposes, a linen tampon, which can be used exactly like you would use a modern tampon. And again, you can wash it out afterwards. One medical treatise from the 17th century talks about tampons, or rather pessaries, made of wool, linen, or even silk. Fancy sometimes infused with herbs. It's unclear whether these are specifically for menstruation or meant as medicine. One thing's for sure, though, if you're a hard-working farm gal, the linen tampon might be the most convenient option. Just make sure to wash it out quickly and thoroughly, and you'll be good to go. Next time, before we get dressed and head out into the day, we'll spend some time getting ourselves nice and clean. See you then. Thanks for listening. I'd like to thank some of my patrons who really help keep the show alive. My newest pirate queens, Nemwi and Monica. My boss ladies, Monique L., Bethany, Bronwyn, Elizabeth, Grace, Faye and Whimsy Soapworks, Hillary and Brian, Melissa, Michelle, Nuria, Rebecca, Tanya, Jessica, Sophie, and Julian. My adventuresses, Helena, Alexis V., Alexis M., Carlos, Iris, Jessica R., Jessica S., Karen, Amber, Kelly, Lizzie, Phil, Samantha, and Stephanie. My warrior queens, Lori and Avery, and my lady pharaohs, all three of whom are named Courtney. Love you, Courtneys. For just a few dollars a month, patrons get prizes in the mail, early access to my episodes, interviews, polls, Q&As, and more, as well as exclusive bonus episodes you won't find anywhere else. To find out more, go to my website. A huge thanks to Ruth Goodman for time-traveling with us. Make sure to check out all her work on the Tudor era and her newest book, The Domestic Revolution. The period-appropriate guitar music you just enjoyed comes courtesy of John Sayles, and the beautiful choral music comes from The Tudor Consort, a choral group based in Wellington, New Zealand. For show notes, including a transcript, images, and a list of my sources, go to my website, theexplorespodcast.com. You can also find me on Instagram, that's my main social media game, Twitter, and Facebook. Much love to Paul Gablonski for my theme music and logo, and Chris from Natural RP and Jordan for their vocal stylings. Mm-hmm.